Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted to welcome Jill Robinson, who is the founder and CEO at Animals Asia with their wonderful slogan, Kindness in Action. Jill has received the Member of the British Empire Award from Her Majesty the Queen, for Services for Animal Welfare in Asia. Welcome, Jill. Hey, Sabrina, thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> yes, absolutely looking forward. And we always like to start with the story of how you came to work and act for animals. So it would be wonderful if you could start with that. Oh, goodness. Um, we're going right back, I think, to when I was a real little blip, you know, about three or four years old. You know, I've, I've, I always say I've loved animals before I could say the word animal. So, um, you know, my auntie used to have to put um, a, almost a lead on me. Like we used to call them reins. I don't know what you call them now for kids, but to stop me running across the road to go and stroke a dog or a cat, you know, because it was just something inherent in me. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up working at the local vets and the local cattery where I cleaned out cat poo for hours every day. <laughs> and from that, I just formed an, an incredible love of animals. I failed physics and chemistry at school, so I wasn't able to be the vet that I always wanted to be. Um, but, you know, it's um, but I had a, a good life in the UK. I worked for the BBC and Thames Television for five years, each of them. And when I came out to Hong Kong in 1985, I kind of thought then that I wanted to go back into television and sort of do research and be a writer, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just met someone walking his cat on the beach and his name was David Dawson. And he turned out that he headed up um, the Asia um, part of the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And um, I just said, oh, if ever you need a volunteer, let me know. And actually he did. And so I started working with him. And then when he left, I took over his role and I've never looked back. And, and then I was working for I4 um, for several years um, until that day that I walked onto a bear bar farm and everything changed from that minute. Yes, and we're going to hear a lot about, you know, the foundation of Animals Asia can you talk a little bit more about the work that you did as an Asia representative for IFA? Yeah, um, well, I was, I guess, really, I was doing a lot of the investigations. So I was going to South Korea, the Philippines, China, and going to the horrible live animal markets and the cat and dog markets, etc. And just building up a profile, if you like, of what those markets entailed. And just working with David about programs that we could come up with to, you know, not just help the animals, of course, um, in terms of their welfare, but also to work on appropriate programs for education for the, for the general public as well. Um, and it was at that time after coming back from yet another live animal market and seeing, you know, dogs and cats being slaughtered for food for the table. Um, and also coming back here to Hong Kong, where you saw a lot of designer dogs that were being bought um, and then thrown away on the streets. 
and just thinking, gosh, if people had a connection, you know, with cats and dogs um, and loved them, you know, they would choose maybe, you know, not to treat them in this way. So um, I, I, I started reading about animal therapy. And as I was reading about it, I, I looked down on the floor and there was my old golden retriever, Max. And I just thought, gosh, you could be a therapist, Max. And I started phoning around hospitals and disabled centers. And I was getting the phone just put down on me all the time by people saying, you're not seriously suggesting bringing in a dirty dog to a sterile hospital environment. And I said, yeah, but they belong to volunteers. They're clean. They don't spread disease. Give us a chance. And until one woman, a matron of the Duchess of Kent Children's Hospital, she said, I've heard of animal therapy. You have one hour in the garden with one dog. And that was that. I've never looked back. I took Max and we greeted these children and we wrapped up, they, they wrapped up Max's legs in the same way that their leg, their arms and legs were wrapped up with bandages. Um, and then Max went over to a paraplegic boy and put his big paws on the boy's bed and this boy's face just lit up and that was it. Dr. Dog was born and, you know, lots of other programs like that with I4 for whom I was really, really privileged to work. It was a great organization. Wonderful. So Dr. Dog, is that still a program that is running today if people are interested to learn more about it? Very much. Thank you, Sabrina. It's in seven regions of Asia now. Um, and it, I mean, it's in India, Malaysia, um, the Philippines, Japan, um, obviously China, Hong Kong and Taiwan. It's, it's, it's mushroomed everywhere. Um, and it just, again, it, it's actually spawned another program called Professor Paws, where we've got dogs going into schools to help kids uh, enhance their um, reading abilities. So, you know, as papers out there show, kids are far less embarrassed to read to a dog than they are to a teacher if they've got learning disabilities. And so the dogs really perform a, you know, a, a wonderful function for these kids and give them, you know, courage, if you like, to practice their reading. Um, and of course, with Dr. Dog in the hospitals and disabled centers, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful program. It just, it, you know, it brings people a best friend when they need it, when they're feeling under the weather, that doesn't offer, it doesn't give them, you know, um, anything else except unconditional love. And that's what we all need when we're a bit, bit off color, isn't it? We just need an animal to hug. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Dr. Dog is run through IFA, is that correct? Um, you no, know, just when, when I left I4, you know, I, I took over the program and so it's okay. run by Animals Asia. So as is Professor Paws. Okay, so they're totally, totally run by Animals Asia now, yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so we'll definitely make sure to have independent links to those programs as well as, of course, Animals Asia. So tell us all about, you know, how, you know, the founding of Animals Asia and the purpose. Um, well, uh, okay, I, I guess I'd have to go back then to 1993 um, when I was still with I4. And um, I had a journalist friend of mine who said, who called me up one day and just said that, he come back from a bear bar farm and he just said, you have to go and see it. And my interest was piqued. I didn't know, you know, about the practice so much. I didn't know about um, any bear, let alone Asiatic black bears. Um, so I grabbed a couple of friends of mine. We went over the border. We joined a tour group of Japanese and Taiwanese tourists. And we went onto this bear bar farm. Um, and we were immediately taken to where you can buy the bear bile in a shop. Um, and also to sort of feed the breeding bears that were kept in this horrible pit enclosure. Um, but I knew that what these weren't the bears that were being extracted of their bile for use in traditional medicine. So I remembered where my friend had said to go and we indeed found some steps going down to a basement. 
um, and came across 32 bears in tiny wire cages um, with six inch catheters sticking out of their abdomens and their gallbladders from where their bile was milked and, and again used in um, traditional medicine. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was horrific. It was, it was a horrific couple of hours that we spent there. Um, and as I was walking around this room, um, I mean, my senses were on fire. I was in such shock. Um, and I must have backed too closely to a cage and I felt something touch my shoulder. And as I turned around, there was a female moon bear with her paw through the bars of the, of the cage. And I took it, it's something I would never do today. We know how unpredictable and dangerous bears can be, even our friendliest bears. You just wouldn't do that to a bear on a bile farm because they're so angry and so badly hurt and reactive to the human species. But there was something in her, I don't know, that, that was just saying help really. And, and the paw was there and I took it and she squeezed my fingers and I left that farm completely changed, completely changed of every fiber in my body. You know, I just, I just knew that something had flipped in my head and my heart and there was no going back. And, and, and indeed there wasn't, you know, that, that, that one um, gesture from that one bear led to the founding of Animals Asia a few years later in 1998 and where we are today with two sanctuaries, one in China, one in Vietnam, and 645 bears rescued. Yes, that's really amazing. We're going to hear a lot more about all these amazing stories. Uh, can you go back and out? It's very difficult, but of course, you, this is really important. You write about it, you talk about it all the time, uh, the, the animals and the housing conditions, but also you mentioned the breeding bears in the pit. So, you know, obviously this is a a business that needs to be maintained and animals of course grow old and die or become sick and die and especially I guess in these quite horrific situations so when you are working with um, stopping the the vile farming and uh, you when you go in and rescue the bears the idea is then also to rescue the breeding bears rescue everybody from that farm can you talk to us a little bit about the process of this well, that's interesting, Sabrina, because, you know, in China, um, not all bears by any means are breeding farms as well. So the bears that we've rescued, coincidentally, um, you know, have been ones that are caged um, and not the farms that have utilised breeding as well. So, you know, we've basically we've rescued those caged bears um, and we've provided compensation to the farmers as well because we don't want to be responsible for anyone losing their livelihood as a result of, you know, of our actions, as it were. Um, in Vietnam, there is no significant evidence of any um, substantial breeding pro any breeding program at all in Vietnam. So, um, you know, when we, when we and, and the farms are much smaller in Vietnam as well. So they're usually sort of like a, a small cottage industry, if you like for farmers that are doing other practices as well. Um, so um, yeah, both countries are very, very different in terms of how we do rescue the bears and indeed in, in terms of the compensation. We don't give compensation to, to farmers in Vietnam because the industry there is totally illegal. So again, we don't want to reward farmers for an illegal practice as well. Yes, okay, that, yeah, that's very, I didn't know that, so that's, Another, you know, you wonder where then all the bears are coming from and, you know, when they are all in the cages and yeah. And of well, course, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, you know, it's pretty obvious when, you know, yeah. very often we're, we're rescuing bears that are missing a limb, you know, from being caught in the wild illegally in a leg hole trap. 
So, um, yeah, you know, and, and many of the cubs are confiscated as well when they're young, you know, from mothers that have been killed, you know, maybe over the borders in Cambodia and Laos, etc. So it, it is, it's a dirty business in every, every respect. Yes, and you mentioned the importance, of course, there's the, you already also said when you started working with IFA, and of course, I'm sure also through your television work, you said writing and research, it, a lot of it is about education, about information, and um, you talk about traditional medicine, and of course, there's lots of traditions there, and, you know, perhaps you can talk a little bit about how some of the educational programs have shaped you know, collaborations and, and working together to, you know, reduce or eliminate this practice. Um, yeah. Of course, people think that this is helpful to them and therefore they want to buy it. Yeah, you raise a really good point. And, you know, we always say that we, we work on this industry holistically. There's no other way. There's no point in, you know, being in another country and pointing a finger from the outside in. You have to work from the inside out, you know, on multiple programs that sort of shrink the industry little by little um, and, and, you know, things like demand reduction. So, you know, obviously with the use of um, bears in traditional medicine, what I first want to point out, I think, to your listeners is that it works. You know, bear bile will, will I think, be a shocking revelation to many people that it does work and it does have efficacious qualities. Um, it's in, um, you know, Asian terms are cold medicine to treat heat related illnesses like high fevers and high temperatures, anything that's inflamed like red and sore eyes, even hemorrhoids, for example. Um, but of course, there are, you know, in China, 54 different herbal alternatives and in Vietnam, there's 32 different herbal alternatives. Um, but there's also synthetic alternatives as well um, to the, you know, the, the substance that is the key um, acid compound in bile, and that's UDCA or ursodeoxycholic acid, um, that has been, you know, analysed not just in Asian terms, but also, of course, in Western terms as well. And actually, synthetic UDCA, um, not using bears, but synthesised in a lab, has been sold since about the 1950s. So, and you know, with again, with very sort of um, high, um, you know, effect. To, to the illnesses that it's, um, that it's treating. So, you know, we shouldn't disparage traditional Chinese medicine or traditional Asian medicine for that, for that reason. We should be somewhat respectful of it. Um, and, um, and I think especially with bear bile and know again that, you know, it's had its place, but now is the time, you know, the, 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 the bears shouldn't be suffering anymore. Yes, and these are such important, you know, if you like consultations and discussions and like we talk about kindness in action, it's the, like you say, right? You don't want to uh, disadvantage the people that have lived of this or have believed certain things for a long time and now, you know, changing that. And of course that also takes time and they of course need a different way to then be employed or start up something else. Uh, and also this aspect of, you know, that it, that it works or that something is valuable. So, of course, for example, in conservation, right. you know, you sometimes have um, indigenous people use beautiful feathers for certain celebrations. And of course, that might have an impact on the birds uh, in the forest, right? But then you can see by working together on recreating synthetic, uh, you know, feathers and still maintaining the tradition, how can we transition into this respectful you know, working together and living together yeah. 
and and yeah these things yeah. are important right they absolutely are, Sabrina, you know, and I think, again, it's understanding, as you say, you know, from the sort of ground level up. And that's, and sorry, you did ask me about how we, you know, mitigate these problems as well. But obviously, the biggest one is working with the traditional medicine associations and doctors. Um, and in Vietnam, especially, you know, it's been a big, big program for many, many years. I mean, there's one large association of some 70,000 members um, who pledged to end all um, sale and prescription of bare bile um, by the end of last year, which they have indeed done. And so, you know, we work with um, this association and their members um, in terms of having monthly clinics, for example, for the local community to come along and actually try the herbal alternatives, you know, and because the doctors know that they work so well, we've actually, Animals Asia has actually been financing the, you know, the, the gifting of free samples to the community so that they can try it, go home, try it and go, oh, it absolutely does work. And so they come back and they bring their friends and their family and they even bring their children. You know, we have a children's club there to keep the kids entertained and stuff as well. Um, and then we work with the doctors to grow the herbal alternatives across the country, you know, often together with schools as well. We've got 13 such herbal gardens as well. So it's something that really, as you say, has to involve the local community um, in public education programs, too. Yes, and I think it's wonderful that you give all these examples because sometimes people also trying to get into this field, right? And later I'm going to ask you how people can get involved. And of course, there's so many different levels of this work. Some is directly with the bears, but then there's all this education and supportive care and, you know, all this, you know, information on, on even, you know, you might be a botanist interested in animal welfare or in medicine, and this might be your career path, who knows, right? But also, yeah. where are you going to, where's it going to make the most difference, right? When you uh, invest, invest time, energy, money, you know, how, and it's such a delicate balance to constantly think, okay, we have life animals to care of and then of course we have education programs and others so it's it's really really interesting and important and i'm glad you're sharing all these examples in you know in which ways basically yeah. um, really what all that entails. Yeah. Well, yeah well it's true i mean you know look you know pe people are just you know very often caring about people you know because they're they're concerned quite rightly about their livelihoods and about the way they live and you know in china for example bears are often seen as a threat to the local community because they're coming into human habited areas so you've got problems there with human bear conflict um, you know, and, and you're not going to get any prizes for, um, you know, trying to protect the bears only. You've got to go and work with the local authorities to protect the people, too, because they're seeing their livestock um, injured or even killed. You know, people are being injured as well when the bears are obviously hungry and coming in for food. So that's another of the programs that we work with in China, you know, to um, supply uniforms to the local field biologists who are often government, government field biologists, um, also infrared cameras so that they can be tracking the bears as well. Um, and then, you know, once they've got all the information after interviewing the local community as well, then we can work on programs again of, of human bear conflict mitigation. So it's, it's really trying to, as I said, being holistic to think about not just the bears, um, but the people too. Yes, absolutely. I remember when I came to volunteer at the Bear Sanctuary in China uh, with you all, I visited a small tea shop uh, in town uh, on the day off. And there was a lady and I was I was just looking at all the teas in the window and all the beautiful pottery and so on. And then there was a little 
uh, sign on the window with different teas and um, a, a piece, and I couldn't read it obviously, um, but I just saw a rhino. And so I went in, uh, it was just a rhino picture with a with tea, you know, the scribbles and, and um, so I went in and just kind of looked around and then I started talking to the lady in the store and she wanted to do some sort of tea drinking together and that was lovely. I ultimately spent three hours in that store and she was actually showing me how she is talking to the people about teas and other uh, herbal remedies um, to stop people buying rhino horn and use teas and herbs instead. And, uh, and she was yeah local lady, older lady. Uh, and I thought that was just so fascinating. That always stayed with me because there's obviously, you know, people everywhere that all that are thinking about how can we make a difference and how can I, and this lady was, how can I make a difference through my tea store, my herbal store for a rhino horn. And I thought, you know, that is just, those are all the sparks of hope that I thought was also a wonderful story uh, to share. Very much. It is wonderful, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's honestly, you see the light come on in their eyes when they talk about stories like that. And we see it a lot with um, teachers, you know, when they come to the sanctuaries, again, both, both in China and Vietnam. And I've always said, you know, that the passion of the school children is only as good as the teachers um, because they just have to drive those kids. And you know immediately when you've got a teacher that's 100% on board, you know, you can really just connect with each other and just see that, you know, yeah, just, just that wonderful path forward where you know those kids are in good hands. Yes. And so you talked about bears. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, the bears, what species of bear, probably, you know, the most famous bear from China is probably not this the bear that you're going to be talking about. So perhaps you could share a little bit more about the bears that, that you rescue and, and those that are in your sanctuaries. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're not talking about pandas, that's for sure. But um, we, yeah, we're talking about in China, Asiatic black bears and brown bears as well that have both been caught up in the industry um, of which, you know, we rescued both species over these years. And then in Vietnam, we're talking again, Asiatic black bears and sun bears as well. So, um, you know, they're, they're all obviously um, implicated um, both in the trade and in, in terms of, you know, the threats to their survival as well, because, you know, when the bears are dying on the farms, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, there's a, a certain amount that are supplemented from the wild, um, you know, to, to boost the farm figures as well. So it's, uh, it's something that I think was possibly well-intentioned in the beginning to try to save the species from being caught and killed, um, you know, for their whole gallbladders and seeing the population go down there. But now today, there's a lot of evidence that shows that they're still, um, you know, uh, captured from the wild um, to supplement the farms now. Yeah. And your philosophy, um, I read, is you know, and of course, uh, outside of your own philosophy, because of course your slogan is kindness in action, but you're talking very much like about that every life matters, every life should be respected. And, um, you know, perhaps we can talk a little bit about like the specifics that, you know, when you're caring for the individual bears or some of your other programs on cats and dogs and wild animal welfare, um, in, in, you know, these different aspects that you work in, in Animals Asia? 
Oh, what a question. I guess it's just, you know, Sabrina, we're all connected. We just, you know, we, we just all have our individual personalities and characters. And it's not, it's not right, I think. It's not just to lump every animal into a species and just talk about species conservation all the time. It's, you know, it's, it's animals are as individual as we are. And I think we should respect that. And, um, you know, it, it's certainly in the bear's case, um, everyone we've come across, you know, behaves differently, acts differently, likes different foods, different toys, different ways of going about their daily business, different friends, you know, which they do, of course, make very good social engagement with each other. And, you know, every bear is unique as we are. So it, it's just, it, it seems to me very obvious. And I, I it, it does upset me that, you know, sometimes you one can get sort of, um, disparaged if you like for being um I don't know being soft you know or, or you know fluffy bunny type syndrome when actually um as I say it's 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 very important to recognize the individual individuality of the animals that you care for and the animals that you rescue as well because they all have a story to tell yes absolutely I always this resonates very much with me I always say you know animal welfare is a goal and an end in itself because we often talk about you know greater goals like conservation and education but animal welfare is a greater goal in itself and each and every individual you know cares about what happens to him or her and as you say you know it's so important to really consider the individual's perspective um, in our programs but also in our communications and you talked about you know connecting um Right. people to animals and of course that ha happens often through individual stories as yeah. much as of course talking about conservation of a species or part of a habitat is really important right. but those individual right. stories are so so important yeah so I really I, absolutely really I mean we we get you know you know when visitors come along I think a lot of zoos you know say that they 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 want perfect specimens you know and they and they're disinclined to show animals that have a disability it's exactly the opposite for us you know in many other sanctuaries I know across the world you know you you show them with pride the animals that you've rescued because my goodness do they you know attach themselves to people that come along to to see them and want to learn their story you know, they really engage visitors and, and, you know, who want to learn more, not just about that animal, but the circumstances from where they came and why they arrived with us in that condition, etc. So, um, you know, and some of our most charismatic animals that have really connected with people have like three legs, or even two legs. We had a bear with two legs, you know, Freedom, who hopped around all over the place and <laughs> had a million boyfriends and was the most charismatic animal on the planet, you know. Others are blind, others are miss, you know, missing their teeth, others are arthritic or have heart conditions. It doesn't matter, you know, again, they, you know, it, 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 as, as we have uncles and aunties and friends and colleagues who have all these, you know, different disabilities as well, and we do ourselves, so what, you know, it's just who we are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we all have our different ways of being in the world and our different personalities. And it's just lovely to, uh, and I think also, you know, I've seen a few um, changes also happening in, in zoos where they now have, for example, the older animals where maybe their, their coat starts to look a bit funny because they're old and then they have signs saying, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with Mr. So-and-so. But uh, he is, you know, I don't know how old. And uh, instead of, you know, sometimes we would, 
uh, have these animals go to the back, you know, of house so they wouldn't be visible. Yeah. I think, you know, there is uh, some evolution indeed in, in zoos, but also in, in sanctuaries of, you know, changing how we, you know, communicate about the animals in their life stages and, and their, and their ways of being in the world. And those stories can be so important um, to connect yeah. And uh, yeah, you so you talked about the bears and the bio farming and the various ways that you are really from working in the wild to uh, working in the sanctuaries. And you mentioned, of course, the collaboration already briefly uh, uh, with governments, you know, working with biologists that might be in, in service mm -hmm. working of the government. And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about how uh, and why that is important. Oh, goodness. You, I mean, we like and we enjoy working with government, you know, because it's something that if you're working in these countries, you, you have to do, you know, it's like because they head up, whether it's, um, you know, bears, whether it's captive bears or farm bears or, um, you know, wild bears, it's, 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 it's something that, you know, we have to learn how to, I think, collaborate for the future. Um, in Vietnam, for example, you know, it's only been as a result of trust building over many, many years. We first started working in Vietnam um, in the late 1990s, um, when many um, bear farmers were government officials, believe it or not. Um, so that was a very long, hard road, you know, to sort of gain their trust and um, invite them over to China to see our bear sanctuary there um, and start talking about perhaps doing the same in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, I think the Vietnam authorities, like they've, they've always had a very sort of good eye on the fact that they've, they've got forests that is deeply precious to them, the environment there that they want to protect. Um, and I think once they saw our sanctuary in China, they were, you know, well, okay, it's clear that, you know, the taking of bears from the wild for their, you know, to farm them isn't doing the, the species any good at all. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was something that over the, over the years, we put our money where our mouth is and we said, we'll build a sanctuary. We need your support. And they gave us the land in Tandao to do that. And now we're talking about a second sanctuary. So, you know, it's, as you say, it's so fundamentally important because if we didn't have that relationship with them, we wouldn't have been able to build the sanctuaries or get anywhere as close as we are on the public education programs too. And now, finally, we've signed the memorandum of understanding with them um, to end bear farming once and for all, you know, and, and, and rescue the remaining bears. So it, it opens up so many doors and so many opportunities. Yes, this is wonderful. It's like a... Like, obviously, you know, I'm not um, always up to date on everything that you're doing, but, you know, every time I hear something or now, like now you're say, sharing things and you're just like a little jump, like, yay, you know, it's another step because, you know, these things take a very long time. And I know that sometimes people might say, well, like, for example, through Animal Concepts, I we travel and, and teach in different places. And then when people say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you must go a lot to Asia. There's so much to do there. And I'm like, well, there is a lot to do in Europe, too. Right. And there's a lot to do everywhere for animals. And in general, you know, people or countries don't necessarily like to be told. Um, so this is why, right, it, we have to work uh, slowly we have to work respectfully it's almost this consultation it's building this this you know trust like you said so that on that you can come to some sort of common understanding and ways forward of why we want to do this 
right? Yeah. And, uh, and tie into, like you say, uh, for example, in Vietnam, their desire for protecting their environments and their forests. And uh, yeah, so those things are so important to consider. And, yeah. and you're not only working actually with bears, but you also have a cat and a dog. You already mentioned Dr. Dog and Professor Paws. And so perhaps you can talk a little bit uh, on the about the cat and dog welfare programs you're working on. Yeah, sure. Well, we're very excited, especially in China. Um, I mean, we've been working there for decades, um, even before Animal Asia was was formed, you know, and it's it's just been, you know, one of our campaign goals, our founding goals to end cat and dog consumption in China. And at last, in May last year, um, dogs were removed from the livestock list after all these years and all these decades and by default cats because they were never on the list in the first place. Um, and, you know, this was something that just made my heart sing because I think people in the West, you know, some people were, were finger pointing and saying, well, they just did it because they bowed to the West and, you know, because we love our animals and, you know, it, and we were criticizing China. It, do you know what? The, the, the reason that the, the Chinese government ended um, or took dogs off the livestock list was because they very clearly said that we benefit from dogs in society dogs and and you know are good for our physical and our psychological health across the world and it was just so wonderful to hear that because you see more and more certainly in countries like china that you're seeing you know guide dogs for the blind you're seeing hearing dogs for the deaf you're seeing dogs in customs halls everywhere you know you're really seeing that um, dogs have a have a function now in Chinese society, um, which which is so wonderful to see. And indeed, that the local population are moving farther and farther away from wanting to you know include them in in consumption as well. So again, this was you know this was I think you know because of the. Um, you know, the collaboration, if you like, between local groups and the government too. So when I first began, there was one um, animal welfare group and now there's 250 in China. Um, and, you know, and these are extremely passionate groups that, um, that are working collaboratively with the government. They're helping the government in terms of, you know, if, if they're rescuing animals from the streets, um, the, the local police, they'll often give them over to the local NGOs and just be forming this unique partnership with them. So again, it was just, you know, after all these years, after inspiring the conferences that we have every year, uh, working with the media, um, talking about rabies control with the government as well, in terms of the fact that nearly 100% of these dogs are stolen from people's loving family homes or the streets and the cross-border transfer of these dogs is a perfect vector for spreading rabies. You know, just talking about issues like that outside of animal welfare more holistically so that that conclusion that the government made more easily sat with them and with the local community as well. Yes, and just like with other topics, sometimes the uh, health or economic or other benefits need to be you know at the forefront even though perhaps our underlying drive is to stop animal suffering directly but also our other drive is uh, obviously health you know and others but sometimes yeah you need to choose what are you going to uh, have at the forefront right and um, just like in conservation sometimes we talk about preserving you know flagship species uh, so that the habitat is preserved so that the other animals in that forest or in that area and so it's always thinking about 
um, yeah, what, in what way are we going to communicate? And, uh, and I think it's interesting because a friend of mine also, when it comes to when you mentioned finger pointing or, you know, perceptions, uh, a friend of mine went to travel in India and he said he so often asked people, you know, um, so many times that people ask him, is it true that you eat cows? You know, it, it, from because you know, in in our countries uh, here in Europe, uh, we often eat cow. Uh, but of course, you know, so the idea of saying, "Oh, how terrible they eat dogs," or you know, they eat other animals. But you know, there's just different perceptions of different people. And again, right. going yeah, going to talk at you know um, where people are, and then seeing together, you know, what how can yeah. you move forward is so important. And, and it's interesting to think about, you know, dogs being on the livestock list, you know, that's not something that is in, on our radar there, but yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, you know, even cats, you know, that they're helped too, you know, there's obviously been a great problem of cat colonies in China as well. And it's only in the last few years that we've been working with local groups there to help both the cats and the local community. You know, the cats are out there, they haven't been vaccinated, they haven't been desexed, they're calling at night because they're obviously wanting to mate, so they're upsetting the local community. And now you've got local groups that, you know, Animals Asia is able to fund that is able to bring those cats in, desex them, you know, vaccinate them and get them back on the streets where they're cared for by colony carers as well. It's, you know, usually the elderly um, population as well, the people that are caring for them, who, who at the end of the, you know, towards the end of their days are just loving something to do, you know, to, to work with animals in, in, the, in the field, if you like, and feed those cats every day and have a purpose in life. So it's a real win-win situation for everybody. And it, and it just works so beautifully well as well as reducing the you know the population of the local cats as well so the local community is is you know not so frustrated by by um you know their perceived risk of disease etc yes yeah and it's uh, it's all these small steps continuously right and having uh, just before the podcast we talked about you know in dutch we say having a long breath you know, for things you just have to have a very long, you know, breathe slowly and go forward slowly because a lot of these yeah. things take a lot of time. And uh, and even though perhaps our, you mentioned, you know, every animal um, is important, every person is important, we all have our individual stories, but perhaps, you know, we are not yet there when it comes to animals, other animals having equal place uh, and rights mm. in, you know, in living in this world. So yeah, perhaps it's not necessarily ideal, but it's moving towards um, a different space. Yeah. And that is so important and to celebrate, right? Every time again, because uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long, long journey. And uh, some of, we have had um, already wonderful contributions from Animals Asia um, on the podcast, uh, Sarah came to talk about the work in, in Vietnam and on the pause platform, Sarah and Dr. Rachel, you know, talked about caring for the bears and soon we'll have uh, the animal welfare director, Dave Neal, come and talk to us. And so he will talk a lot more about wild animal welfare. Perhaps you can briefly touch upon uh, what that is about in, in Animals Asia. Yeah, um, 
Gosh, Dave is, Dave is doing a fantastic job with him and his team, both in China and in Vietnam. And, um, you know, one of the sort of flagship campaigns there, of course, is the um, elephant conservation and taking elephants that were being ridden in the tourist industry um, and, you know, being sort of looked after by their mahouts and, and obviously having a, a life out there of, 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 of suffering throughout their in, entire decades. Um, and now they, you know, with the help of the um, Olsen Animal Trust um, in the UK as well, we've been able to take several of those elephants um, out of that industry and have them free roaming in Yokdon National Park, um, which is just the most beautiful um, program that sees elephants with no longer carrying the chairs on their backs, no longer, you know, being exploited by the tourist industry and now free to roam in the forest together with their mahout as well, you know, and now tourists can go along and watch free roaming elephants now. And I, I can't think of a nicer program that's, you know, turned itself completely around as a result of, of Dave Neal's work. Yes, wonderful. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that. But it's really important. Again, you know, it's uh, an example of showing how, of course, people, the Mahouts, are dependent on their relationship with the elephant and for their income. And how can something look different and still provide uh, income for for the for these people and for right. the elephants to lead a different life? So thinking right. about how um, we can make a difference for that. And of course you have a lot of people celebrating, supporting, rooting for you. Uh, of course, lots of people from the general public, but also quite a few, you know, uh, patrons and ambassadors and celebrities. So perhaps you could talk a little about, you know, the ways they support all the yeah, wonderful work that you're doing. Oh gosh. Yeah. We've been ever so lucky. I, I, pinch myself still you know because our ambassadors are, are second to none I, I don't even know where to start because you know we've been so blessed in the UK of course you know many years ago I met the wonderful Peter Egan um, who was a very famous actor throughout his whole life on screen and stage and he came out to see us and as he said it was life-changing and my goodness this man put his money where his mouth is he he just went back to the UK and and just you know fell into campaigning for Animals Asia like you know the champion that he he always was just amazing he introduced us to Leslie Nichol who plays Mrs Patmore in Downton Abbey um, who's become a great great friend and um, has also been out several times to see us um, including to Nanning I, I know we're going to be talking about that in a minute as well um, and um, of course my you know my mentor my friend my heroine Virginia McKenna who starred in the film Born Free and set up together with her husband, Bill Travers, um, and now is being um, run to by Will, their son, um, the Born Free Foundation. And, you know, everyone's often said to me that I'm very lucky to have not only um, met my heroine, but for her to become a friend as well. And I, and I really am. I, I just count my blessings. Um, it's been an absolute privilege to, to you know, to, to work with Born Free over the years on different different projects they've certainly been helping us and indeed Animals Asia I don't know may not even have happened if it wasn't for three words by Virginia when many 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 years ago about 1997 I was saying I was thinking of starting an organization to help the bears and she said just do it <laughs> and that was and that was wow I thought you know I thought there would be a long in-depth conversation and no absolutely not it was just do it you know so I just did it <laughs> together yeah. with other colleagues and 
and here we are, you know. And so we have been so blessed. And of course, we've got, you know, amazing celebrities like um, as well that have come on board. Olivia Newton-John, Ricky Gervais. Um, oh, gosh. Matt Sorum, Slash. Um, Judy Dench, you know, it's it's it, James Cromwell. It, it's it's unbelievable, really, you know, and, and so many more. And um, and you know what? The nice thing is that they're all the real deal, totally the real deal, you know, in terms of animal welfare and you know environment and everything. You know, it's 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 just great to work and know with people like that. Yes, absolutely. And so how if people are like, oh, I would love to, of course, you can adopt bears, you can you have wonderful, um, you know, merchandise that, you know, gifts and everything. So in what ways can people help if they are listening to this? Of course, we're going to have a link there. In what ways can people get involved? Oh, thank you so much. Well, they, look, it's limitless. You know, there's there's groups, all, you know, especially in the UK, for example, that are going out there and doing crazy things like wing walking. You know, I've just heard of a group that's going to be doing that um, in the, the Surrey group. They're going to be doing that soon. Uh, it's like, are you mad? <laughs> you know, but wing bless walking their heart. on the plane? Like, yeah, wing <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we climbed the spinnaker a few years ago. That was mad. It was abseiling the spinnaker in Portsmouth. It was just crazy. Um, but, you know, there, there's people that are just out there doing lots and lots, you know, schools doing sponsored silences and swims and, you know, baking things and so you can go on to our website and get loads of ideas get on get in touch with our teams they'd always be you know so happy and willing to help you as well um, and of course you know I have to mention the devil word funding because it's something that without which we can't exist we can't and now we've got this opportunity to build this second sanctuary in Vietnam because the Vietnam government have always said to us yes we do want to end bear farming yes we have the where you know the will to do this we just don't have anywhere to put the bears so it's obvious you know our response has got to be we'll 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 build this sanctuary we'll do everything we can but we need to raise millions to do it and that will be it bear farming will be done in Vietnam can you imagine you know, after all these years. So please, please, anyone listening, jump on this and help us because we sure do need it every step of the way. Absolutely. Yeah, goosebumps all the way here. Uh, wouldn't that be absolutely extraordinary? And you already, you know, of course, for anybody who has been following Animals Asia, they know about the 101 bears, about eight years in the making, nanning, bringing home 101 bears. So in conclusion of this podcast, Jill, could you share this amazing, amazing journey? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, we've lived it for eight years, you know, and I really, really, really want to pay tribute to Ryan um, Sukot, who heads up the bear and vet team now in Chengdu. And before him, um, Nick Field, who headed it up. And, you know, between the two of them, I've just, I don't know how many gray hairs they must have sprouted, them and the whole entire team. It's been eight years um, from when we were first contacted by the bear bar farmer who said that he'd taken over a horticulture facility and had realized that there was a bear farm within this facility. And as a, you know, a long-standing Buddhist, he was really upset um, by the industry. He didn't want a part of it. So he asked us to take over those bears and we agreed we were going to build a sanctuary first of all, but you know, again, for multiple reasons that didn't work out. And we asked if we could take the bears back to our sanctuary in Chengdu, 
permission was given, but then we were beset by so much red tape um, as this centre kept being taken over by other businesses. And so every time we had a formal agreement, it crashed again and we had to go back to square one and, and start again. And, and, and then last year we were ready to bring all the bears back and we got hit by COVID, of course, as did everyone across the world. And there was no transport of wild animals. And so in April, sorry, and yeah, in April, finally this year, we got the green light finally, and we had 101 bears left. And um, it took three phases. You know, it was, um, gosh, um, oh, how many miles? Uh, 500, 650 miles per journey. Um, and, you know, 36 bears per phase. It was incredible. Um, and our teams just worked like they'd never worked before i i'm i honestly i have no words to pay tribute to every single one of them they they it was a devastating place to work on for a start um but also the move the organization that you can imagine to move 101 bears you know in three different phases was phenomenal without one member of staff or one bear being hurt or injured and they did it and those bears are now back safe and sound at our sanctuary in chengdu so hats off you guys just honor and respect you more than you'll ever know. Yes, we absolutely echo, you know, that it's just amazing. We'll put a video, a link to the video, you know, you, you can see, you know, the with the road, with the trucks and, you know, all the work, all the people working together, the bears. Um, so yes, definitely, if you're listening to this, you know, jump onto Animals Asia website, see how you can get involved and uh, go and bake, go and run. And of course, you know, adopt a bear or sponsor in any way you can. And thank you again so much, Jill, for coming onto the podcast, making time. And yeah, really hats off, lots of respect, lots of love and hugs to all of you for all the work that you're doing. It's really amazing. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Sabrina. Thank you and for your, your amazing work at Animal Concepts as well. Keep going, keep, keep going. The world surely needs people like you. Thank you. So that was the end of an amazing podcast. So make sure to show your support. And of course, you know, you know that well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get educations and tools so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today if you're inspired. 